This Athletic Podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app. So you can bet on multiple scenarios and build your own bets with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sports betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple's App Store. It's for over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hi guys, it's Ali Maxwell here. Firstly, thank you for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking podcast. Just before we get underway with Tom Warville and with Michael Cox, I wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded before the football season was suspended. At that time, Liverpool were on the cusp of sealing the title. It felt like a given that it would come in the following weeks. And it's in that context that we recorded this episode about their defensive prowess on course to a historic title. Uh, We are still recording brand new episodes of the Zonal Marking Podcast for the coming weeks. For example, two episodes being recorded this week with James Horncastle, who joined The Athletic recently and has plenty of stories and insight to give us specifically when it comes to Italian football. So plenty to look forward to in the coming weeks. For now, it's on with this week's episode of the Zonal Marking Podcast. Hello, welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, Michael Cox alongside me, the brains of the operation, Michael. What are we talking about today and why? Uh, we're talking about Liverpool, why they have such a good defensive record. And uh, yeah, Tom, who's alongside us, debuted for The Athletic with a very interesting article which featured lots of stats that I wasn't completely familiar with. So uh, Got us all thinking yeah. about goal kicks as well on his debut for the ZM pod just a few weeks ago. Tom Warville, that is, football analytics writer for The Athletic. Tom Attackers tend to get the headlines in this sport, but as the saying goes, across the pond, certainly, offence wins games, defence wins championships. Uh, to what extent is that the case with this Liverpool side? Um, it's uh, I've always found that quite funny because, you know, football is made up of good defences and good attacks. You can't just win a league with one being good and the other being, you know, terrible. Um, but I looked at kind of the history of the Premier League, well, history of football, if we go back to 1993, um, and... <laughs> Of that, the best defence in the league wins the title 41% of the time. So the other 59% uh, shows that, you know, defence doesn't always win you a championship. Would you, potentially putting you on the spot, would you say the, the, the equivalent number for being the best attacking side in the league would be higher or lower than that? Yeah, so that was higher. So that was 64%, I think, from so memory. The best, so the team that scores the most goals has won the Premier League 63% of the time. Uh, yeah, but the one that's conceded the fewest has only won forty-one percent of the time. Yeah, so that is just a fallacy. Then, yeah, defense. We've, we've myth, myth busted. There we go. A good start. Uh, Liverpool have, have scored a similar amount of goals to Man City this season. Their closest rivals, albeit a long way off, but they have conceded far fewer than them. So you can see why we would at least be uh, asking the question about Liverpool's defense and why it's so good. Um, is it fair to say that this is one of the things that has really set them apart from the rest this season? It, it might not be 
that having the best defence wins you the league every year. But in this situation, something that stands out a lot with this Liverpool side. Yeah, I think with this Liverpool side this year, they, they've done really well to kind of grind out results and they've won one of far few games by um, just, you know, a one-goal margin. I think there was a period of time when they had nearly nine games uh, in a row where they won by a single-goal margin. And you can't have that without having a really, really solid defence to, to back them up. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think they are a class apart because of that. But equally, Man City this year have just not been at the races when it comes to the defensive side. And I think a fair amount of the reason why is because Imerick Laporte, who's probably their you know, premier centre-back, um, has only played 508 minutes this season, which is 20% of, of what is actually available. And last year, um, he played the second most minutes behind Edison. So when you have a player as good as he is missing for so long, it's going to impact you uh, a fair amount. Of course, Van Dijk's health has been key to Liverpool's season. It's only a hypothetical, but it'd be interesting to to see how they would have fared with Van Dijk suffering similar injury problems or absences to uh, Laporte. Michael, on a previous podcast, we discussed Jurgen Klopp as an individual and as a manager throughout his career. His tactics have changed since his time at Dortmund, as we discussed with Rafa Honigstein. Is there still the same commitment to Gagan pressing, that's always one of the words that has defined Klopp's managerial career. No, I don't think there is the same commitment. I think they've evolved a little bit. They've become a bit more intelligent and patient sometimes with the way that they try to win the ball. And I think just the concept of the way that Klopp's side press is is maybe slightly different to the way that a Guardiola team is pressed, for example. Guardiola's rationale for his emphasis on pressing was always you know, look at the players we've got. We're not built to not have the ball. So we have to try and get the ball as quickly as possible because we're not very good in the defensive side of things. Obviously, that applies to Liverpool and Klopp's side as well. But Klopp's rationale was always more a little bit, you know, this is the best way to create chances. You know, win the ball when the opposition are kind of disorientated, pushing men forward. If we can win the ball quickly, there'll be space. We can play a couple of passes and get get in. It's kind of like a, an attacking tactic, almost yeah. a strategy for an attacking purpose. Exactly. And I think sometimes, you know, maybe more so with Dortmund than Liverpool, when they did commit men to the kind of counter press and those men got bypassed quickly, kind of saw that as, you know, part and parcel of what was part of an attacking strategy. So I think the fact that they have retreated a little bit, I don't think they're quite so frantic when they lose the ball. They don't press all over the pitch when, when the opposition are trying to play out. I think that's enabled them to be a little bit more solid defensively and protect the, the back four really well. Tom, you wrote an article on this very subject recently on the Athletic site, uh, why Liverpool are conceding so few goals. And of course, as head of analytics, you were delving deeper into the underlying performance data, the numbers, if you will. What do the XG numbers over the past few seasons tell us about Liverpool on the defensive side of the game? So ever since Klopp joined uh, Liverpool, uh, going back to 2015-16, they have uh, slowly reduced the quality of chances that they've conceded according to expected goals. Um, so his first year, they, it was 36.6 uh, expected goals conceded. The year after, slightly up at 37. Uh, and then year on year after that, they've kind of shaved off four expected goals a season. Um, last year, well, it's quite funny. I wrote this article saying, you know, Liverpool's defence is, is, you know, a near legendary status and really, really good. Um, and then they go and lose 3-0 to Watford the day after the piece comes out. Um, and they've actually probably, you know, they've, they're going to concede more goals this year, most likely, than they did last season with 22. And probably concede high quality chances this year as well. But Klopp has tightened things up at the back. Um, and, you know, maybe this is the limit they can get to in terms of the quality of their the defence going forwards. You noted that they have faced a lower quality of 
on-target shots uh, in recent seasons. Can you explain a bit more about how you how you begin to calculate that? Sure. Um, so I guess a, a question back to you on that. When you're watching football, what do you think makes a good on-target shot? I would say the location where the shot ends up, that the 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 aim of the shot, I suppose. So yep. in the corners, for example, being a very good place for a shot on target to end up. Yep. Down the middle, less so. Exactly. So this kind of model takes into account um, the kind of what we call the the pre-shot value or the expected goal value that we all kind of know and, and some people love up to this point. Um, and from that, we know like, okay, you've got a 2% shot, uh, a 2% chance of scoring from, you know, 30, 35 yards out. But if that's arrowed into the top corner, that's going to be a difficult shot for the keeper to save. And so therefore, the quality of that on-target shot is, let's say, 40% uh, for the top corner. If um, it's Granite Xhaka and he, he kind of arrows one into row Z, that will have a 0% chance of scoring on target because it's off target. Um, and then you can have shots, like you say, which go down the middle, which are easier for the keepers to save historically um so therefore we can get like in the aggregate a good understanding of have liverpool kind of like reduced the quality of on target shots that they faced and in fact they have and this year is like a, a huge outlier in terms of what's the quality of chances they've conceded pre-shot versus those on target that's interesting i, I imagine that sort of metric can have some value in terms of evaluating goalkeepers yep. uh, if we know more about the shots that they have faced rather than just where they came from but where that shot ended up then we could begin to work out which goalkeepers are potentially saving more shots than they would be expected to or a, or a normal level goalkeeper would and on the flip side whether they might not be doing as well as they could or should be doing michael let's move on to allison uh, they signed allison in the summer of 2018 how much of an impact did that signing of an of one individual make on on liverpool's well whatever it's been the last two years now yeah, a huge impact. I mean, clearly he's a, an excellent goalkeeper, but I think there was something about his presence between the posts that just had a bit of a calming influence on the back four. And I know that's slightly difficult to quantify, but with, with Mignolet, with Carrius, you were never certain. And even though Alisson has made mistakes, I think in his first half season, you know, there were mistakes in possession. There was a, a shot he parried out against Manchester United. I think Lingard scored the rebound. There were mistakes, but his overall game, his overall calmness, I think, has, has really changed... Liverpool and I don't know whether Tom has stats on this but in terms of his shot stopping he seems I mean really exceptional yeah so you know Ali kind of made the point can we use this data to evaluate goalkeepers and shock yes we can um, and I think that you know using this expected goals on target figure as a means of evaluating keeper performance is better than say save percentage because save percentage kind of weights every single shot equally and we know that kind of that you know that isn't the case. Um, so we, if we look at the numbers from from Football Reference, which is, is powered by uh, Statsbomb, um, we can see that um, Allison this season is expected to concede, to concede nearly you know fifteen point six, nearly sixteen goals uh, based on like the quality of the on target shot that they they are, and he's only conceded eleven. Um, so there's kind of you know four four or five goals that he saved above like the average goalkeeper would there, which. Um, Definitely, you know, definitely helps. Um, so they've lowered the quality of shots on target, Liverpool, and they've got a goalkeeper who is, uh, as goalkeepers go, uh, overperforming or, or performing at an incredibly high level compared to, to others in the division. Good time to mention that we have done a whole podcast on the changes to the goal kick rule and what that meant, what teams are doing or not doing, and, and how effective the different strategies are. So it seems like Alisson 
doing pretty well uh, in that regard, even in an attacking sense. Uh, we have to talk about the imperious Virgil van Dijk, enjoying one of the best seasons that a centre-back has ever had, uh, certainly at Premier League, in the Premier League era. Uh, there were also some stats that bounced around the internet earlier this season, Tom, that suggested that it's almost impossible to actually dribble past him, that, that basically said he was, he was unbeatable. Uh, were those numbers true? Because surprisingly enough, that's not always the case online, <laughs> and especially when there are people with certain agendas to push. What, what do the numbers say about the concept of dribbling past Virgil van Dijk? Yeah, I, I hope people aren't coming to the, the Zonal Marking podcast to find out that certain things on the internet aren't true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he did go the whole of last season without being dribbled past um, at all, which you know is, is a fairly frightening stat. But this year, six players have actually got the better of him. And I was wondering if either of you could guess any of who those six players are. Mikhail Antonio? Wrong. How about Saar of Watford? Incorrect. So the six are Musa Gineppo at Southampton. Ruben Neves at Wolves. What? He's not a dribbler at all. Neves. He's not. But if you do see that one on video, he flicks over Van Dijk's head and plays a pass on the half volley into Raul Jimenez's feet. It's the wow. smoothest piece of play I've seen this year. Um, Dele Alli, Bernardo Silva, Jay Rodriguez and Nicola Pepe, of course, as well. Ah, okay, interesting. But, I mean, his impact has been absolutely undeniable whether or not it is possible to dribble past him. Uh, the one question, I suppose, in the back four this season with Alexander-Arnold and Robertson just equally as important to this side has been uh, Van Dijk's partner at centre-back, Michael. Uh, is it fair to say that Gomez works best alongside Van Dijk? Yes, yeah, so there's been three partners alongside Van Dijk. I don't think any Liverpool fans would say that Dejan Lovren was their preferred option. Had a difficult game against uh, Watford in that 3-0 defeat. I think maybe got a little bit too much blame. There were other players that fought for the goals. So really it's between Gomez and... Uh, and Joel Matip. I think defensively Gomez is so useful because Liverpool are playing a high defensive line, probably higher than they played last year. That threatened to cost them in the first few weeks of the season. It probably did cost them in that Watford game. And obviously Gomez has got the pace to to sweep up behind. He was, I guess you have to say, partly responsible for their concession against Bournemouth, although personally I thought it was a very obvious foul on him by Callum Wilson. Matip, I think, is a different type of player. I think he's a bit more of a front foot defender. He makes more tackles. I also think he's underrated in terms of his distribution. I mean, that's something Van Dijk's very good at with quite sweeping diagonal balls or straight balls, actually, into Mane, like that one he played for uh, for Mane at Bayern last season. But I think Matip's a little bit more intelligent, a little bit more incisive with his passing. I mean, I remember him playing in the Bundesliga as a midfield player. He's able to play in both positions pretty much only plays centre-back for Liverpool. But I think that those incisive passes into the feet of the forward shouldn't be underestimated. So, yeah, defensively, Gomez, I think, is the best option. But Matip brings something a little bit more. Like Michael's saying, we can kind of like look to quantify you know, how progressive maybe Matip's passing is. Um, and if we look at per 100 of his pass attempts, how many of those move the ball forward 15 metres or more? Uh, and Matip has a higher figure than, than Lovren and Gomez in that. So, yeah, there's definitely um, some statistics that back up that he is a, a progressive passer. On the flip side, though, Joe Gomez, I feel, is maybe slightly better at retaining possession. Um, so if we look at his, his link passing, which is just any passes that end um, inside the defensive and, and middle third, uh, he's got the highest pass completion rate of any of his passes in those areas, which is a decent proxy for, you know, can you retain possession and, and not turn it over uh, in, you know, 
slightly easier to pass areas. So maybe with, with Gomez, you get a more resolute defender, but you don't get any ball progression. Matip uh, attempts more tackles and deceptions when adjusted per, for possession than Gomez. He's definitely more of a, a front foot defender than the two. With Van Dijk alongside uh, you know, either of these centre-backs, you do get a good level of ball progression. Uh, he has one of the most unique passes in the game, that the kind of like low driven forward ball over the top of defences that neither of those players uh, can attempt. It's an interesting scenario for, for whoever partners Van Dijk as well, because I think it's fair to say that uh, opposition teams tend to avoid trying to go head-to-head with Van Dijk, whether that's the fact that no one really attempts to try and beat him off the dribble, but even in aerial duels uh, and, and whatnot, you can imagine that for opposition teams in preparing their team to play against Liverpool, you would try and, and, and focus your attentions on the so-called weaker centre-back, which would be whoever played alongside Van Dijk. So it's, it's by no means an easy job in that sense. Michael, all good defences, all good back fours or fives have to have uh, someone or some people screening in front of them, protecting them. Of course, for Liverpool, that is Fabinho, you'd say, first and foremost. But uh, Jordan Henderson as well plays a a key role in this sense. How important have those two been in terms of being a line of defence in front of the defence? Yeah, really important. I mean, I think it's fair to say that Fabinho's had a slightly difficult time since he came back from injury. I don't think this calendar year he's been particularly impressive. But... I would make the argument that Liverpool pretty much won the league by December. And I thought he was really excellent in the first half of the season. I think particularly there was a game away at Chelsea where they won 2-1, whereas him against Jorginho in the holding roles kind of play a similar position. But I thought Fabinho was just so much more imposing with his physique and his pressing. And in that game, he didn't actually mind leaving the back four a little bit exposed if, if he you know, thought it was necessary to push up and shut down Jorginho. And so they were really stopping the attacks at source. Henderson, we know... I guess, you know, has been one of Liverpool's best players. And I think it's the opposite in the sense that when he's been out injured, Liverpool have struggled and people have, have maybe realised his importance to the team. I'd say what he does particularly well is he covers for Alexander-Arnold, who is always on the overlap. He's always probably 10 or 15 yards at least further forward than where you'd expect when Liverpool have the ball. But Henderson's always kind of on hand to cover that position. So, yeah, he's been very, I think selfless is, is the word really for him in terms of, you know, when you think back to the Henderson that went to Liverpool, he was a bit of a box-to-box, wanted to do a little bit of everything, wanted to be the Steven Gerrard figure. But now he's you know, more cautious, more reserved, and I think he's played a, a very big part in their tactical excellence this season. Now here on the Zonal Marking podcast, we are bang up to date with tactical trends, but not always to the same extent when it comes to fashion trends. The good news is that this athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, which is an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. From there, you fill in a style quiz and tell them all about your personal style, budget, size, shape, and all the measurements that you didn't know existed. A personal stylist then sends you five items of clothing, handpicked especially for you from a selection of brands. You try on everything at home and style it out with other items from your wardrobe. And then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For the stylist's time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. So you try before you buy, at home, delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. 
Stitch Fix allows you to save time because they do the shopping for you, to discover new styles because they've got a broad selection of different styles and brands, and to enjoy top styling tips as well. These are experts that give you ideas on how to wear the items they pick out for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X.co.uk forward slash athletic. Tom, we hear a lot about the attacking output of Trent Alexander-Arnold and his pal on the other side, Andy Robertson, and, and that's clear as to why really the main creators in this team, which has been a, an interesting tactical quirk, one we did cover on that podcast with Rafa Honigstein a, a, a month or two ago. But we're focusing on the defence this week. In terms of Alexander-Arnold and, and Robertson as fullbacks in this side, what are the numbers that can help us evaluate how effective they are defensively? Yeah, so with Trent, I think that there's a, a kind of another myth that he's not amazing in one-on-one duels. Um, and I think the, the numbers kind of back this up a bit. So he's been dribbled past um, 40%, 47% of the time um, that a player attempts to take him on. That which doesn't is, sound ideal. Yeah, it's not ideal. And it's the second highest in the league for fullbacks behind um, Benjamin Mendy at Manchester City. So there, there might be a, a weakness there, but equally, there are certain things that of one-on-one defending where maybe a tackle isn't made or an action isn't made and it's not really picked up. Um, there was a game recently against Crystal Palace where I thought that Alexander-Arnold did really well to kind of shepherd Wilfred Zaha into a corner. Mm. Um, he couldn't, you know, he didn't attempt to take on. They doubled up on him. And I think maybe Liverpool... Um, you know, they try their best to not expose the weaknesses of certain players. Given the aerial prowess, I suppose, of Van Dijk, you would suggest that sending a winger down the line, for example, would be preferable to to this Liverpool defence in terms of being confident they could deal with any crosses into the box and, and, and as most defences are these days, less keen to have someone running from the outside, inside, and causing a problem there in those half spaces. Uh, Michael, how much do that front three of Mane, Salah, Firmino contribute in a defensive sense? I think they contribute in terms of pressing or at least being in a position to press when the opposition are trying to play out from the back. I think sometimes uh, they're happy enough for the opposition to launch the ball forward and, and Liverpool are pretty good at winning aerial duels. I think the key thing they do is they don't track back. And I mean that in a positive way because they're so dangerous on the counter-attack, uh, Mane and Salah in particular, that I don't think opponents want to push their fullbacks forward. I think that's been really obvious against Manchester City even. I think teams do do that and they feel that they can overload the opposition down the flanks. But against Liverpool, you know, teams just keep their back four in place because they're so scared that Liverpool are going to break into the space. So, yeah, I, I would say they are not as energetic as maybe they were two or three years ago, but I think there's a very good reason for that and I think it works for Liverpool. One thing that I feel that Liverpool do pretty well is um, tactical fouling uh, and kind of stopping attacking moves before they can really get going. Um, and Bobby Firmino's kind of record in terms of fouls in yellow is really highlights this. Um, he's had 119 fouls in the last three Premier League seasons and he's only been booked once. And the booking was due to him taking his shirt off in the 4-3 <laughs> win against Man City. So the, there's something to be said for the sneakiness that Liverpool have in terms of being able to stop moves, shine the, shine the teeth at the referee, jog away and, and pretend like nothing ever happened. 
<laughs> Sorry, so he's made over 100 fouls without having picked up a yellow card for one of those. Correct, yeah. And, and kind of comparatively, we've got Nicola Pepe for Arsenal um, has given away 12 fouls and been booked four times. <laughs> so if we kind of like put you know Pepe and Firmino on similar numbers, Pepe would pick up 36 yellow cards in the time that Firmino has picked up one. That is an astonishing stat, Tom. Uh, Michael... The first side to score more than two against this Liverpool team, and very few have scored more than one, but the first side to score three or more was, of course, at Watford in Liverpool's first defeat of the season, that 3-0 win at Vicarage Road. When you broke that one down, what did you discover? How did Watford cause Liverpool so many problems in that game? And why haven't other sides been able to do the same? It was one of those games that was actually difficult to write an analysis for because the analysis was almost too obvious. I mean... They, they started off Watford trying to get the ball out to Daily Fair as much as possible to take on Alexander-Arnold, which worked pretty well until he went off. And then it was just the same approach on the other side with Saar making more direct runs in behind the defence. And I think this has been the one question mark that I don't really have an answer for this season in terms of why haven't more teams been able to exploit the space in behind Liverpool's defence? OK, it's difficult to work the ball through the lines, but we saw so many times in the first seven or eight weeks you know, a real obvious shift that Liverpool are playing maybe five or ten yards higher up the pitch. It seemed likely to catch them out at some point. In the end, it hasn't. That has been a little bit of a curious thing. And I'd be interested to know, you know, in terms of Tom's uh, expected goals numbers. I mean, it seems like Liverpool have almost got slightly fortunate in terms of not conceding a little bit more. We've discussed all the reasons why they are good. But when I've looked at the expected goals numbers... You know, the actual goals considered have fallen so much more than the XG numbers. So it's a slightly strange situation. I'd say this is this has been something of a topic of conversation, uh, certainly in analytics, Twitter, and when trying to understand this Liverpool side and their success, and, and I suppose in a sense trying to rank them and rate them among other teams that we've seen winning the Premier League. The XG numbers, Tom, they, they don't suggest a team that has been as dominant as this Liverpool side, barely dropping any points throughout the season. The main rebuttal, one of the main rebuttals I've seen, focuses on what's called game state. The fact that Liverpool have been ahead in so many of, of their games this season, potentially that would be why they might not need to create as many chances as some teams. What You must have seen this discussion online. What have you decided about this? What can you tell us about this debate, I suppose? Yeah, I think the point that Michael was making is, you know, maybe the the goals against numbers don't really line up with the quality of chances that they've conceded. And that is that is very true. So up to this point, they've conceded 21 goals uh, and the XG says that they maybe should have conceded 28. Um, so that's a, a pretty, you know, big difference. And you, you can attribute some of that to Alisson. Um, I think... You know, maybe it's not the most fun or interesting explanation, but I think there's probably a, a fair amount of luck in, in this. I'd be very, very surprised if they uh, repeated the feat as dominant uh, or in as dominant a fashion next year, next season. Um, purely because, you know, goalkeeper performances year on year can be fairly noisy. Um, expected goals, we kind of like trust that teams in the long run will, you know, revert to that mean figure. Um and yeah, you know, Man City have got the second best defence of the league. Chelsea have got the third best defence of the league. Both those sides, in terms of expected goals, are less than one expected goal more than, than Liverpool in terms of conceded. So, you know, on paper, those three sides have got very, very similar defences. Um, but Chelsea have gone and conceded 39 goals from 28 XG. Um, sometimes you just, you know, the way that the dice rolls or, you know, whatever cliche you want to use, the, uh, you know, fortune goes your way and you, you can get a bit lucky. I would suggest any 
underlying numbers comparisons of Kepa's season and Allison's season probably wouldn't reflect that well on the Chelsea goalkeeper. Uh, Tom, some big sides have in the past been vulnerable to set pieces against smaller teams. It's certainly when setting up your side to play against one of the so-called big six would be uh, a major area of importance. Uh, attacking set pieces, having the chance to uh, put together some routines to try and make the most of those opportunities. Has this been an issue at all for Liverpool? How's their defending of set pieces been? Yeah, so while it's not kind of the best defence in terms of um, goals conceded from set pieces, that uh, that goes to Burnley, who've only conceded two goals from set pieces all season. Um, Liverpool have conceded the joint third most with five goals alongside Spurs uh, and Leicester. Um, if we look at expected goals in these situations, Liverpool are actually second behind Manchester City. Um, 5.8 expected goals against from Liverpool for these situations. Now, there is kind of a... You know, something around, you can say, for set pieces where there might be nuances in set piece routines or things that maybe the expected goals models don't pick up right now. Um, but I, I probably put faith in the fact that Liverpool are, you know, seemingly pretty tight at the back when it comes to defending set pieces. Uh, and, you know, their output is in line with what you'd expect. Um, City, on the other hand, can probably deem themselves fairly unlucky um, in this regard, in, you know, which they can probably do so for, for most of the season. Maybe the most unlucky side uh, is Norwich, um, who, when it comes to scoring goals from set pieces, who had eight XG and just scored the three goals. Do you like beer? Do you like it free? How about free beer? As a valued listener of the Zonal Marking podcast, we'd like to bestow upon you just that. Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from all across the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash zonal and cover the postage of just £4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as a listener of Zonal Marking, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 beers total. Beer52 are beer pioneers. They traverse the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries that planet Earth has to offer. No surprise then that they're the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 delivers a case with a different theme. So far, the themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave any time. The power is in your hands. As well as the best, most interesting beer that money can buy, your case will include the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, which explains the theme and individual beers you'll receive, and a beery snack is thrown in, just to top it all off. Don't like dark beers? Don't worry. Choose the light plan. Easy. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash zonal to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, our listeners get two extra free beers. And Michael, we are on this podcast analysing and celebrating this Liverpool side. We've spoken in previous podcasts and you've written at length about the way that they attack, focusing on that front three, the fullbacks as well and their attacking output. Today, we're focusing on the defensive side of things. So giving you no time really to let the dust settle with this Liverpool title win. How will you remember this Liverpool side without the ball when you're continuing to do your tactical analysis of the game for the Athletic in the future? Well, I think they might be remembered slightly falsely. I think because the game impression thing has been such a kind of key word around Klopp, 
people will remember them as that was their key approach. But like I say, I do think they've been a little bit more passive than they were in the first few years. Um, and I just think that they're just a solid side. I think Van Dyke is... It's the obvious thing to say, but he's made such a difference. Again, you know, to go back to what I said about Alisson, it's not just the fact Van Dijk's a very good defender. I just think he has brought a calmness and a leadership to that back line that was really lacking a figure like that. We know about Alexander-Arnold and Robertson as, as very good players, but I do think they needed someone to kind of instruct them and boss them into position. So, yeah, I expect people will probably remember the, you know, the attack and the fullbacks probably more than the defensive side of things. But as we say, they got the best defensive record in the league by far. Yeah, I think Michael's very right in the way that Liverpool have become slightly more passive um, in, in recent seasons. And if we look at passes uh, kind of allowed per defensive action, uh, which is you know a half decent proxy for for pressing, Liverpool when when Klopp joined with nine point three passes allowed per defensive action, and now they're all the way up at kind of ten point six. So it, these are small numbers, but you know over the course of many games in a season, that is actually a fairly big drop off, actually. But Michael. It kind of comes back to what you mentioned earlier about the front three not tracking back. This presumably, given we're talking about the top team in the land and, and one of the top managers in the world, could be put down to a strategic decision to actually try and bring teams onto them in order to exploit those gaps with that front three so high up the pitch in transition. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a very deliberate strategy and I think you know nine times out of ten it pays off for them. And yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different to the approach that we saw maybe 10, 15 years ago where there was this, you know, Liverpool, a good example, their, their right winger was Dirk Kout and he was playing right wing because he would happily follow back the left back. I mean, Salah just doesn't do that and for very good reason. And, you know, we can take it for granted the, the goal scoring figures that Salah has got. No one expected him to come in and be a, a prolific winger. He was a very, very talented player going forward, brilliant dribbler, was maybe scoring 10, 15 goals. But for him to you know, be golden boot back to back, a lot of that is because he's got the freedom to not track back. And you know they do give him that freedom to remain in a counter-attacking position. And to touch on kind of the, the roles of the midfield in this Liverpool side, you know, they're, they're not there to score goals. Um, and it's funny that this team seems very, very... In my mind, it's one of the those that you just know the roles of each of the players so well. Um, you know, Henderson and Fabinho both kind of boss the midfield in terms of the tackling figures. Um, when you adjust those for possession, they're they're sixth and eighth respectively. Um, Wijnaldum is really really good at, at retaining possession and, and keeping things ticking over. It just feels that they're they're almost kind of you know a caricature of of what a different roles on a team should be because they they stick to those roles so well and they're so well outlined. We've given some idea of how this Liverpool side under Jurgen Klopp have been so efficient defensively, have built a title defence as well as that front three that we've always discussed in Mane, Salah and Firmino. The emergence of Trent Alexander-Arnold and Robertson in an attacking sense. But our job today to go through the numbers with Tom Warville. Thank you, Tom, for providing such insight. Thanks, Ellie. And the tactical analysis that Michael Cox brings. Thank you, Michael, for your insight. Thank you. So hopefully, having got the zonal marking treatment with myself, with Tom Warville and Michael Cox, we've gone some way to explaining why this Liverpool team have such a sensational defensive record. We'll be back again next week with a new topic on the Zonal Marking podcast. Just a reminder that we are by no means the only pod in the athletics stable. So many other podcasts to listen to, all of them free on all podcast platforms and available ad-free on the Athletic app. Now, if you haven't signed up to the app, clearly it's not just 
a podcast hosting site, but also written content galore from Michael, from Tom, and from a whole host of other writers under The Athletic's roof. Sign up to The Athletic today, going to theathletic.co.uk forward slash zonal marking. We'll get you 40% off your annual subscription. As for us, we will be back again next week. This has been the Zonal Marking Podcast, brought to you by The Athletic.